Hello and welcome back to the Australian Histories Podcast. This episode, number 56, we're going to take a look at an iconic piece of infrastructure built along a section of the Victorian coast, the Great Ocean Road. Not only is it one of Victoria's, indeed Australia's, most well-known international tourist attractions, and a favoured coastal town drive for locals, dotted as it is with beautiful surf and swimming beaches, but you may be surprised to know the road itself constitutes Australia's longest war memorial. The Great Ocean Road's heritage listing states it was, quote, constructed by workers including around 3,000 returned servicemen as a utilitarian memorial. The Great Ocean Road is a significant reminder of the participation of Australian servicemen in the First World War, the Australian community's appreciation of their service, and the support provided for the continuing welfare of servicemen upon returning to Australia. Unquote. So I look forward to talking about how that came about, and briefly mentioning some of the other elements that make the Great Ocean Road a remarkable destination. But before I begin, my thanks to Michelle G again, and Fraud J again, and to Alexander D for contributing to the upkeep of this independent podcast via the link on the Australian Histories podcast webpage, helping me to continue with the research for future shows. Thanks also to those who took the trouble to give me the old five-star review, or to hit the like buttons on the various platforms, or who recommended the show to a friend. Now, as I write, summer holidays are underway in Australia, and a historical trip down one of our many beautiful coastlines will be just what we need. The Great Ocean Road, on the southwestern coast of Victoria, runs between Torquay and Allensford, and for a good part of its distance was constructed... Yes, you guessed it, right on the coast, with the sea on one side and the bush and townships on the other. The Memorial Road actually stretches 242 kilometres, or that's 151 miles, with exceptionally beautiful and varying landscapes and sea views to the south, making it a truly memorable tourist drive. The geology the road traverses covers more than 150 million year old deposits and several sites have yielded rare polar dinosaur fossils, the best-known area perhaps being Dinosaur Cove near Cape Otway, dating to around 106 million years. Its heritage listing notes, quote, The fossil record from this area includes an assemblage of velociraptors, flying pterosaurs, underwater plesiosaurs, oviraptors, primeval crocodiles, turtles, and upright relatives of echidnas and platypus. The earlier finds from these sites continue to be analysed and new discoveries published by some of Australia's most preeminent paleontologists, unquote. particularly Patricia Vickers-Rich and Tom Rich, who made many discoveries along the coast and worked for decades on their analysis. Fossils of great interest are also being discovered in the dunes around Bells Beach and at various other sites along the coast, providing Quote, important insights into the evolution of baleen and toothed whales, representing a previously unknown offshoot of the evolutionary tree. Unquote. 
The Port Campbell area has some particularly outstanding geomorphology on show too, with coastal erosion there creating arches and freestanding stacks isolated from the mainland and dotted along the coast, such as the 45-metre-high formations known as the Twelve Apostles. Though of course the erosion that formed them continues, and presently, or at last count as I write this anyway, there are only eight of the twelve still standing. However, there are also areas of partial erosion forming newer arched outcrops, and as these formations erode further over time, some will become the new freestanding stacks, for a time at least. I'll put a couple of pictures on the Australian Histories Podcast webpage to illustrate. The Great Ocean Road now runs through country that would have been a paradise for the many Aboriginal groups living along the coasts of Western Victoria. The heritage documents note that the road traverses the traditional country of a number of Aboriginal language groups, including the Wathaurong people of the Geelong area, the Gilijan, whose lands extend from Jellybrand River to Colac and the lakes and wetlands beyond, the Gadabunnat, whose lands extend east of the Jellybrand River and around the Otway Ranges, the Garai Warung, west of the Jellybrand River to Warrnambool, and the Wadawarung, north of Painkalak Creek. And they remind us that these areas continue to be of economic, spiritual and cultural importance to these Aboriginal communities. Archaeological evidence to date indicates Aboriginal occupation in these areas from around at least 5,000 years ago, though it may well have been much longer. There are a number of documented Aboriginal heritage sites, quote, including shell middens on the coast, stone artefact scatters, and some isolated artefacts on the adjoining plains, forested hinterland and uplands. These probably represent a small percentage of what actually exists. The regions also encompass important indigenous songlines, stories, and family links to places, unquote. The country surrounding today's Great Ocean Road would have been resource-rich environments for the first Australians. Seafood was abundant at various times of the year, and areas inland were used to cultivate grains and harvest tubers. Evidence drawn together by Gamage and Pasco from the diaries and writings of the earliest European explorers and other sources show just how the environment was managed and harvested to ensure sustainable food sources across different local environments, and the southwestern regions were highly productive for the indigenous people living there. The judicious use of fire over millennia had fashioned the land into different productive zones, really, some open grassland for native seeds and grains, some more sheltered grasslands which would have been attractive grazing areas for kangaroos and other game. Fish traps were built at various watercourse sites, evidence of permanent structures for use in the seasons when the groups would remain living there locally can still be found at various places inland from the coast, including the western districts. Buckley, who lived amongst the Wathaurong people, later recalled how there was plenty of animal food and a great deal of fish in the waterholes. Explorer Hoddle commented on the wide plains and abundance of wild birds and ducks on the lakes. So as they moved seasonally to take advantage of the food sources, in most cases they would be assured of a good food supply across the region. However, the nature of the land changed very quickly after the settlers brought in hard-hooved animals to graze on the open grassland, and the indigenous locals were restricted in their usual land management practices, which had previously kept the plains clear of scrub and promoted the growth of the native grasses. 
By the early to mid-1800s, many areas were reverting to unproductive scrub, Charles Latrobe noting that a trek from Cape Otway to Jellybrand River in 1846 took three days to cover 75 kilometres, but a mere three years later it took five days and needed, quote, a good deal of exertion, a great deal more indeed than my first excursion, for it was found quite impossible to follow my old track, unquote. As a result of their careful land management, those open plains in the west looked like a very attractive prospect for colonists wanting grazing and agricultural land. And since colonisation, and given the vast difference in the approach to land use and ownership between the first Australians and the colonisers, like many other regions in Australia, confrontation developed, and sorrowfully, the places of importance now also include massacre sites. One of the earliest encounters between Aboriginal people in the area and Europeans occurred after William Buckley escaped from the short-lived Sorrento penal settlement in December of 1803 and travelled around to the western side of Port Phillip Bay. As happened almost uniformly in the story of First Contact, like the shipwreck survivors from the Sydney Cove we talked about in episode 43, Shipwreck and First Contact, The people Buckley encountered were surprised and sometimes ambivalent about his appearance, but were mostly accommodating and helpful, and he went on to live with the Wadharong people for over 30 years. In the 1820s and 30s, the coast was visited by whalers and sealers from Tasmania, and whaling stations were established at Portland. The Henties arrived in 1834 to establish pastoral settlements, and the heritage documents note a wave of exploration and settlement spread down the southwest coast of Victoria following the founding of Melbourne in 1835. So townships developed along the coast as fishing, farming and wood harvesting in the region grew, but they were often fairly isolated, with access by sea and only rudimentary roads leading northwards to the main road link back to Geelong and Melbourne. Several small coastal trading companies serviced the region's passenger and cargo transport needs. In fact, well into the 20th century, some coastal towns were still only reliably serviced from the water. Otherwise, the townships had road access inland towards the Princess Highway, but not directly to one another. In 1859, a telegraph line from Melbourne was extended from Geelong to Cape Otway, where it linked submarine cables to King Island and Tasmania. The lighthouse there was serviced by a very rugged track, and this track remained the only access route for most of the isolated towns along the Otway coast. Further tracks were added, connecting Apollo Bay, Cape Otway and Johanna in 1870, but they were just as primitive and rough. The holiday resorts that were being developed at Lawn and Apollo Bay were still mostly accessed and serviced by sea. Some of the coastal areas closer to Melbourne, such as Lawn, Apollo Bay, Torquay, Anglesey and Aries Inlet, had become quite the coveted holiday destinations by the turn of the century, and as early as 1908, the suggestion of developing a coastal road that would take advantage of the beautiful seascapes along the way was an attractive idea linking the coastal destinations rather than taking the long trek to each from the inland highway would boost the tourism and trading capacity of the new resorts and coastal towns. In 1916, Calder 
of the Country Roads Board suggested creating something along the lines of, quote, the coast road constructed by the Highway Commission of California, which has proved such an enormous asset to the state of California by the attraction of tourists from all parts of America, unquote. And they were sure that such a scenic route along the Otway coast would draw visitors from all over Australia, too. But this Great Ocean Road would have another important impetus. Servicemen returning from World War I would undertake its construction. Not only would the project provide work for these men, but the finished road itself would become a memorial to the fallen and the returned servicemen who had done their great duty. Howard Hitchcock, businessman, philanthropist and mayor of Geelong from 1917 to 22, was one of the strongest supporters of the idea of upgrading and joining existing tracks into a scenic modern coastal highway. But he was also very enthusiastic about providing the work involved to repatriated servicemen. Finding employment for the returned servicemen was a crucial factor in their rehabilitation into civilian life and this project would offer them a hand in creating a lasting memorial to their comrades. Though some were sceptical of such an aspirational project, it generally had great public support and would draw in tourists and help stimulate the economies along the coast at a time when the motor car was becoming more popular and facilitating travel to leisure destinations. The relevant Victorian Road Building Authority, then called the Country Roads Board, was, however, unable to directly fund its entire construction, as building such a road did not fit into their mandated funding criteria, except for some shorter sections linking farming communities. But such was the interest in the project that a trust was formed, with Howard Hitchcock as the inaugural president, to raise funds to realise the Great Ocean Road project. Formally launched in March of 1918, McCormick from the Country Roads Board became their honorary engineer for the Great Ocean Road Trust. Expected to cost around £150,000 for the 161 kilometres not financed through the CRB, the Trust over the years undertook many fundraising activities, including promotional movies with donation drives, land sales around the soon-to-be-newly-accessible coastal towns, and they solicited generous donations from the communities involved. Actually, funds were also later raised by placing tolls on the road sections as they opened, and these were only removed after completion when the Trust handed control of the road over to the CRB in 1936. The CRB and the Defence Department contributed in-kind throughout the project. The board provided the supervision, engineering and surveying at no cost to the trust. The repatriation department allocated the labourers, but also supplied tents, blankets and tools for their returned soldiers to use. And the state and federal governments did contribute funds and land over the years in support of the trust. The Returned and Services League and other bodies also made contributions. So it was a very cooperative venture and very successful, albeit with a few periods of downtime when the funds dried up. McCormick of the Country Roads Board was responsible for the surveying work and supervision of the construction, and is credited with the design of the famous route, writing that, quote, roads should follow the lines of nature for aesthetic and practical reasons, unquote. 
The repatriation department selected physically fit returned soldiers suitable for that class of work, suggesting, quote, the congenial surroundings, such as sea bathing, fishing and shooting, should be very acceptable to the physically fit and suitable returned soldiers, unquote. And so, with the first work crew at the ready, physical construction began in September of 1919. Although the route required a great deal of blasting and hauling of rock, in the early years all of the work was undertaken without any heavy machinery, the men using picks, shovels and wheelbarrows, with some sections utilising a horse-drawn scoop to carve the line of the road from the rugged terrain. It certainly was an ambitious engineering project and the men were often working and living under difficult conditions. One local resident recalled how precarious the task was for the workers placing explosive charges, simply being lowered down the cliffsides on ropes. And he noted that many returned soldiers suffered from some level of shell shock and found the resulting explosions very disturbing. The first heavy machinery was not available until 1923, when a grader and a truck was donated for use in spreading the metal on the road sections. Numerous camps were set up near reliable water sources to house the workers, and these could be quite substantial sites, housing between 20 and 100 men. The camps would have mess huts, common rooms and kitchens stuffed with camp cooks, and the men themselves were housed in canvas tents. At some camps, vegetable plots were established to augment the rations, which were supplied at cost to the workers. Fish and rabbits the men caught locally were also on the menu. The heritage documents note that today no above-ground evidence of these camps can be seen, although it is possible some might be found if digs were undertaken. Most of the official documentation related to the camps has been lost, apparently, but the camp's sites are now believed to be predominantly located on private land. The workers were paid ten shillings and sixpence, which was similar to the average wage for the day, and was higher than their service wages had been. Some repats were assigned part-time, or for only a number of months before making way for someone else, and work ceased for a time, as I mentioned before, if the trust ran out of funds. While some were unhappy about the working and living conditions, most appreciated the camp camaraderie and the environment around them. One group got lucky in February of 1924 when a local steamer became stranded near Cape Patton. In order to refloat quickly before they came to grief, the crew jettisoned heavy cargo, including 500 barrels of beer and 120 cases of spirits. It was claimed that the ex-diggers recovered much of the cargo, which facilitated a two-week-long bender. <laughs> well, a man's not a camel, as they say. The surveyed road was to be one lane wide, with passing places every 100 yards, and when the first section opened in 1922, for a time it would allow traffic to travel only one way, alternating direction every two hours. Certainly the work was difficult and the project nearly failed in its first year. Unwisely, they'd begun work on an exceptionally challenging section between Lawn and Cape Patton. Using men mostly inexperienced and unfamiliar with the labouring tasks required, and the surveyor, not being happy with the works, suspended the project and furloughed the men in February of 1920. So it was decided to move the focus of construction to the section east of Lawn, and the venture resumed 
one assumes with better supervision, in April, allowing for more rewarding progress. Various sections were completed over the years, extending access along the coast, and the section between Eastern View and Lawn officially opened on March 18, 1922, with over 80 cars travelling along the new road in procession to an opening ceremony held at Lawn. Of course, that newly opened road would have been nothing like the one we see today, and 80 cars would really have given it a workout. Everything was still pretty rugged in those early motoring days, and for some reason Murphy's Law was invoked. It rained heavily as the celebrations took place, and the new road became impassable, the guests having to motor home via the inland route to the north. Indeed, the challenging terrain they were working with frequently caused setbacks, landslips and washaways often forcing closures, and putting pressure on the budget and the construction timeline. The introduction of tolls for use in 1922 assisted in ongoing cash flow and didn't seem to put the visitors off. So, as the sections were completed and linked, the Great Ocean Road expanded. But not all the local shires were supportive in facilitating construction. One holdout was the shire administering the section between Anglesey and Aries Inlet. So a local landholder there, a Mr Lane, actually arranged for the linking section of road to be built through his estate, creating a short section of private road and costing him £4,000. Mr Lane's section, known as Lane's Road or Long Beach Road, was opened in 1924 with a tollgate to help him recoup some of the outlay. In 1927, the Great Ocean Road Trust purchased his section of road for a knockdown price and removed the section toll. By 1923, it was reported that between Christmas and the end of January, Australia's peak holiday season, 8,000 people had used the open section of the still unfinished Great Ocean Road, and the prediction of interest in tourism in the area was proved to be correct. Over the years, sections were upgraded and realigned, gradients reduced, the road widened and bridges improved, the final sections only being metalled shortly before it was officially opened at a ceremony again at Lawn on November 25, 1932. In April of 1935, memorial plaques were unveiled at Mount Defiance, commemorating the work done by the returned soldiers in constructing the road that would commemorate the sacrifices of the Great War, 1914-1919. The Great Ocean Road, in its entirety, remains a spectacular and very special monument to all those who served. Between 1919 when the construction began, until 1932 when the project was completed, close to 3,000 servicemen contributed to its construction, and it is a unique and lasting reminder of the war service and sacrifice of thousands of men and women who served in World War I. In 1936, the Great Ocean Road Trust transferred the management of the completed road to the then Country Roads Board, now Vic Roads. However, before they dissolved the trust in 1939, they had one last construction to undertake, the memorial archway over the road at Eastern Point. That archway has been destroyed a few times since then, usually vehicle damage or bushfires, but I'll place a 
picture on the Australian Histories podcast webpage of its most recent incarnation. It is worth noting too that during the Depression, several hundred Susso men also worked on the road. Susso was short for sustenance vouchers, similar to the dole or unemployment support today. The road itself regularly requires major maintenance, sections having been constructed on very challenging terrain. Torrential rain has many times caused landslides and washaways, and bushfires have taken out wooden bridges and created treefall hazards over the years. The Heritage nomination document records some maintenance undertaken in 1971, after it was noted half a million tonnes of rock looked in danger of collapsing across the road, and that section was closed for five months while 55 rock anchors were installed to stabilise that cutting. If you remember, we spoke about the rock anchors as an engineering solution developed in Australia and widely used on the massive post-war Snowy River hydroelectric scheme, which was wrapping up around that time too in the 70s. Bushfires, large and small, have caused damage along the Great Ocean Road and it surrounds numerous times over the years, most notably Great Fires in 1940, and again during the 1983 Ash Wednesday fires, and more recently in 2015, when many homes were again lost in several coastal towns. Flooding and erosion also cause regular damage. In 2011, the Great Ocean Road and War Memorial was added to the Australian Heritage List. Not only is it Australia's longest war memorial, so we might say largest war memorial, but some sources say it's the world's longest. The 242-kilometre Great Ocean Road also fringes the area known as the Shipwreck Coast in Victoria, because of the many ships that have come to grief in the area since Bass Strait was chartered by Bass and Flinders in 1798. In the early days, before sailors were aware of the strait, shipping would generally come to the east coast via southern Tasmania, or Van Diemen's Land as it was then. Once the strait was chartered, those sailing through to Victorian ports, or onwards to Sydney in the east coast, would shave some time off their arduous trip and avoid the boisterous southern seas below. But choosing the Bass Strait was no picnic either. It was still a fairly challenging passage known as threading the needle between Cape Otway and King Island and required a skilful captain who was attentive and sure of the ship's position in a time before reliable navigation tools were available. Nearly 640 vessels were known to be lost on this almost last leg of the long voyage from England or from other far-flung places, even though the Cape Otway Lighthouse was constructed in 1848 to assist with navigation. Only 240 of those wreck sites are known. In Victoria, all shipwrecks more than 75 years old are protected as historic wrecks and are listed on the Victorian Heritage Register. One of the most famous wrecks associated with the Great Ocean Road was the Lockhart, which struck Muttonbird Island and broke up in June of 1878. Only two of the 54 passengers and crew survived the wreck, and those two had been fortunate enough to cling to wreckage and be eventually washed into a narrow gorge with a beach at the end, now known as Lockhart Gorge. 
The loss of the Lockhart is notable also for it being the last of the sailing ships to lose passenger lives through failure to negotiate the western entrance to Bass Strait, according to Charlwood. The steamships that took over were, thankfully, generally more manoeuvrable. Despite the already obvious attractiveness of those steamships, the Lockhart sailing vessel had only been commissioned in 1873, five years before her demise. The shortcomings of the limited navigation tools available, combined with bad weather, led to the loss of the Lockhart. As they approached the Eye of the Needle to enter Bass Strait, it appears they were substantially further north than they should have been, so much closer to the southern coast and getting ever closer. Though the entrance to the strait itself is not really a narrow passage, knowing where you were and ensuring you were clear of the coasts and the islands on the approach to the southern land point at Cape Otway was essential. It is surmised that being able to plot and check their position may have been difficult for the Lockhart navigators in the days prior due to unhelpful weather. Charlwood suggests the captain was probably expecting to see the Otway light around 3am that night, and he had sent a man aloft every 15 minutes to check, but the unfortunate combination of a sea mist obscuring the land and their vessel actually already being unknowingly further north and close to the coast, probably only three nautical miles off, they were potentially so close to shore as to be sighted underneath the lighthouse beam, and they were not alerted by the light to change their course. Sadly, the first warning they were about to founder came from the sound of the breakers on shore in the early hours, just as the mist began lifting. Indeed, they were so close they had very little opportunity to manoeuvre away once they realised their mistake, though the captain tried, but to no avail. Before dawn, the vessel was wrecked against Muttonbird Island, south of Port Campbell. The Lockhart was carrying 54 persons, counting passengers and crew, and miscellaneous cargo destined for the colony, including some items intended for display at the upcoming Sydney and Melbourne exhibitions. Within minutes their predicament became clear as the ship's cabins began flooding. All was chaos and distress as the boat began breaking up sinking within 15 minutes, leaving people and wreckage floating in the churning water. Tom Pierce and other crew members were trying to release a lifeboat before the ship was lost, but the Lockard went down before any could make use of it. The lifeboat ended floating upside down in the water, and Tom was able to cling to its underside in the water. It tumbled and he struggled to keep hold, but after some time he noticed the little boat and other floating wreckage was being washed into a deep gorge. With daylight arriving, he saw ahead in the gorge a narrow beach at the end of the steep cliffs. Letting go of the life raft now heaving in the waves, breaking in the narrow gorge, he made for the beach amongst much of the other churning debris, and reached the sand, bruised, with gashes to his head and belly, exhausted but conscious. He later recalled, quote, When I got on shore, I saw nothing of the ship or any of the people. I did not see the ship go down. I looked for a place of safety and got into a cave, unquote. Some others, like 18-year-old Eva Carmichael, had made it into the water and remained clinging to wreckage, 
but she lost sight of anyone else after some time. She remained clinging to a spar from Lockhart's rigging, floating for several hours before she was also fortuitously washed into the gorge, where she saw Tom walking about. But she couldn't swim and had to use all her strength to call him for help. Tom did swim out to help, but had to try and bring her to shore amongst the turbulent wash of debris, and she was by then in and out of consciousness. She said later, quote, Tom had a desperate struggle to bring me ashore. From the time I shouted to him up to the time we were safe on the beach must have been an hour, unquote. And it had been around five hours by then since the Lockhart had sunk. So an amazing and traumatic ordeal, and a heroic effort on Tom's part in particular. June is winter, and a very cool time of the year along the southern coast of Victoria, so they would both have been freezing after hours in the water. Tom found a case of brandy amongst the jetsam washed up, and he and Eva drank a good amount to revive themselves. Indeed, a substantial amount must have been consumed, as it seemed to have made them both drowsy, and he said he slept some time before searching for some way to climb out of the gorge and find help. Eva, also covered in bruises and cuts, remained there, sleeping. The gorge was very steep and surrounded by harsh, thick scrub, but after several attempts he did manage to climb to the top, and then his next ordeal started. He later recalled, quote, when I got to the top, my heart sank, as I could not see anything that indicated any settlement. The thought of Miss Carmichael lying in that cave made me make the effort to get help, so I started along the coast, but having no boots on, progress was slow." Unquote. But he was lucky, noticing some fresh horse hoof marks from workers mustering sheep nearby, and he followed the tracks. After some time, they saw him walking, and on investigation was told of the loss of the Lockhart and the necessity to retrieve Eva. After they collected more men from the nearby Glen Ample station, Tom led them back to the gorge, before collapsing there from exhaustion. Both Tom and Eva were taken back to the station to recover, though Tom rode out again the following day to help the stockmen look for more survivors along the coast. Over the following days, Bodies were found amongst the wreckage washed ashore along the coast, and they were buried there on the clifftop near today's Lockhart Gorge. Today there are steps constructed to allow access to the beach and the caves that Tom and Eva used. Both young, they found themselves reluctant celebrities when the 18-year-old Tom's heroic rescue story was shared and it seemed the public were desperate to imagine the two as sweethearts. They were, however, very different people, and while there was some sort of bond in their shared ordeal, no doubt, there was never going to be the romantic ending the press were encouraging. After giving evidence to the inquiry, Tom was awarded a gold watch, chain and locket by the Governor of Victoria for his, quote, noble conduct in risking his own life to save that of a fellow passenger, unquote. He was awarded other medals and accolades too, and these ceremonies drew huge crowds, such was the public interest. But Tom was enormously uncomfortable with all the attention. Eva remained at Glenample Station for six weeks recovering, and was shielded somewhat from the media frenzy. But aware that none of her family on board the Lockhart had survived, she was keen to return to family in Ireland. 
Horrified by the necessity to sail again, she opted for a steamer for her return home. But crowds also gathered to get a glimpse of her, and a police escort was required when she finally made her way to Geelong. Tom did meet up with her there, adding fuel to the frenzied fire, but they had shared a terrifying ordeal, and a proper goodbye would have been appropriate. With the Victorian government advancing her £200 to cover her expenses back to Ireland, Eva boarded the steamer Tanjore only three months after her ordeal on the Lockhart. Tom returned to employment with the Lock Line and survived another wreck off the coast of Ireland in 1879. The fanciful imaginings of the Australians created rumours that Irish Eva had found him and nursed him back to health this time and that they had married and so on a story repeated in various publications, but all complete fantasy, of course. After more drama at sea during his career, Tom eventually died in 1908 from an illness of some sort. Eva went on to marry and raise a family, dying in 1934 in Bedford, England, according to her obituary published in the Warrnambool Standard at that time. The Lockhart Gorge would be well worth a visit if you plan to travel along the Great Ocean Road, and much of the story and some artefacts are on display at the Port Campbell Visitor Information Centre and at Flagstaff Hill Maritime Village. There are, no doubt, a multitude of interesting historical stories from the many towns along the Great Ocean Road, and you can find a great deal online, or perhaps make a trip and follow the information plaques along the iconic road yourself but I'll highlight just a couple more points of interest before we finish up today. Bells Beach, near Torquay, is probably Australia's most well-known surf beach, hosting the world's longest-running professional surfing competition, after the inaugural event there in 1961. The well-known surf brand Rip Curl started up in a Jan Juck garage before moving production to Torquay, and Quicksilver also started up in Torquay soon afterwards, helping to solidify the booming surf culture and industry on that part of the coast. The Bells Beach Surfing Recreation Reserve, declared in 1973, was the first of its kind in Australia and the first specifically proclaimed surfing reserve in the world, celebrating the exceptional surf conditions experienced along the coast there. Point Addis, a little further west, marks the start of the Great Otway National Park, which offers visitors access to a short Kuri cultural walk, forest and waterfall walks, koala habitat and much more. Lawns Erskine House Guesthouse, now part of a larger resort, is the oldest and largest surviving guesthouse in Victoria, being built there in 1868. As mentioned before, the area is the resting place of a good many shipwrecks, but the waters around Cape Otway are also memorable because they became the site of the first American ship sunk during World War II. In 1940, the MS City of Rayville hit a German sea mine in the area with the loss of one life. The Cape Otway light station built in 1848 is Australia's oldest and said to be the most important remaining mainland light station. 
the 1859 telegraph station there linked Tasmania and the mainland, and in 1942 it also became the site of a World War II radar station. There's so much more to learn about the local information points, and for anyone planning a trip or wishing to travel virtually from your own armchair, I would recommend starting with Ross Bastien's Historical Driver's Guide to the Great Ocean Road, and I'll provide a link to it on the Australian Histories Podcast webpage. The pictures are fascinating. And a point of interest for some might be the nearby Great Ocean Walk, a hiking track extending just over 110 kilometres from Apollo Bay to Glenample Homestead near the Twelve Apostles. The Trail Hiking Australia website's description includes quote, The track hugs the coastline, which is not always visible from the Great Ocean Road, and traverses an area which hosts koalas, wallabies, echidnas, reptiles, bird species and snakes. <laughs> From June through September, whales can be spotted along the coastline, unquote. It's on my list, but that list is so long. <laughs> Sounds good though, doesn't it? And finally, for landscape design fans, the heritage listing also reminds us, quote, Edna Walling, one of the most influential early landscape designers in Australia, frequented the Great Ocean Road from the early 1920s for the inspiration and rejuvenation provided by coastal views and proximity to nature. The environment around the Great Ocean Road was one of the key factors in her increasing advocacy for the conservation and judicious use of native plants, especially in country gardens, along Australian roadsides and in other public spaces, unquote. So, endless inspiration to be drawn from the area. The Great Ocean Road has been continually improved since the 1930s and is now a good quality, comfortable sealed road with many viewing and information points along its length. The Tourism Victoria figures for 2019 showed that over 2.8 million people visited the Great Ocean Road that year, the majority domestic visitors, but more than 251,000 international visitors as well. So the road continues to reward the efforts of the early visionaries and still attracts large numbers since that first bumper year of 8,000 visitors in 1922. I wonder how many, in 2019, knew that they were also traversing the world's longest war memorial too. So that's it for today. I was rushing to get this out in time for January holidays, so I don't have a podcast recommendation this month. Now, for anyone who listens via Spotify, and that's more than a third of my listeners now, can I ask a favour? Spotify has recently introduced a rating option for podcasts, so if you're using the latest updated Spotify app, you might be able to find the rating option on the screen next time you listen. Could I ask you to hit the old five stars for me? Indie podcasters like myself are always banging on about hit that subscribe button and leave positive reviews, blah, blah, blah. But it's pretty much the only way to promote the show and make it visible to other potential listeners. So if you do enjoy the show, please share and like when you can. It's very motivating for me to see the listeners' numbers growing. I'm still not quite decided on what story is coming up next, so there's no teaser today, I'm afraid. But whatever I settle on, I look forward to sharing it with you soon. 
Remember to check for the additional material on the Australian Histories Podcast website at www.australianhistoriespodcast.com.au. There's lots of related images and links there for this episode, and contact details can be found there also. Take care then, and I'll talk to you again in a few weeks. Cheers. Cheers.